The Vitamin SC3 Podcast is a health-inspired show sharing a variety of sickle cell stories made up of four different components with Mia Robinson, L. Cole, Dr. Lemetra Scott, and Dr. Marjorie Brewer. Each segment gives you more insight into the real lives of sickle cell warriors and their families. You will learn why we are bonded by blood with shared life experiences. Remember, the information shared on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational or educational purposes only and does not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare providers. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world, as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is what we've always done is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the Vitamin SC3 podcast. So if you clicked in to join us today, then you know we're going to talk about bone and bone pain. Oftentimes, people with sickle cell disease, they often have issues and complaints about bone pain, but bone pain is something that is really not very well understood. So today, I brought in a special guest, Dr. Edward Botchway, who's going to tell us a little bit more about what's really going on in sickle cell disease and the bone pain that's experienced by it. Dr. Botchway, I'll give it to you. Well, thank you, Dr. Scott. Um, you know, happy to be here and contribute in this way. So my name's Ed Bochway. Um, I am a professor at the Wallace H. Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory University. My laboratory is primarily interested in biomaterials and regenerative medicine. And those are topics that I don't necessarily think are commonly associated with sickle cell disease research. But my uh, last name, Bochwe, is uh, West African from Ghana in particular. And um, Ghana and Nigeria are two of the countries where you see the majority of people living with sickle cell uh, being born. And uh, my family itself has kind of known uh, this disease intimately. My, my sister has sickle cell disease research. And at a point where I was established in my research career, I just became interested in how I could apply biomedical engineering principles and some of the knowledge base that I had built in my career to solve some of the important problems in sickle cell disease. And bone uh, kind of uh, form development and, and bone formation and to some extent uh, bone pain and, and, and the, the role that your bone marrow plays in just immune homeostasis and how your immune system works are things that uh, were familiar to me in the course of the research that I was doing. And so several years ago, we became interested in uh, 
just ca characterizing the development of bone and its susceptibility to, to injury, as well as uh, bone as a particular source of pain during sickle cell disease crisis. And uh, the spe specifically what we became interested in are how underlying changes in your metabolism in sickle cell uh, can be a potential root cause of inflammation in sickle cell. And to uh, a large degree, we think that that plays a role in bone pain, as well as uh, underlying certain mechanisms of what can go wrong in bone, uh, particularly this disease called osteonecrosis, which we can talk more about if you like. Definitely so. So you say a word that's called osteonecrosis. I know that we know what that means, mm -hmm. but as far as the, the average person who may not have a, a very well-versed background in a lot of medical terminology, what would we say osteonecrosis means in just simple terms? In the simplest terms, osteonecrosis is really... Uh, referring to the death of some of the important cells that maintain the health of your bone. So in particular, in bone, we have the, the, the bone forming cells called osteoblasts, and they help essentially establish the health of your bone by helping to make new bone um, over the course of your lifetime because your bone is kind of constantly remodeling. And because you have this constant remodeling in your bone, there are kind of metabolic demands that accompany that. Like you have to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the bone as it's growing, as it's remodeling. And in sickle cell disease, some of those mechanisms of transporting oxygen and nutrients to the bone can get cut off. And that can lead to the death of some of these bone forming cells and you get this focal breakdown of bone tissue. Uh, and because bone is a, is a tissue that has, uh, that has to sustain force, it has mechanical demands on it. Not only do you have pain associated with the death of that bone, but some of the, the, the mechanical integrity of the bone itself can be compromised and you can get a structural collapse in certain areas. And not only does that cause pain, but there's surgical reconstruction that's often required in those circumstances. And so osteonecrosis is a particularly pernicious problem. Wow. So when people say they have pain in their bone or they're having a sickle cell crisis in their bones, that really is true. There's truth to that. And I know a lot of people may think, well, you know, it's your bone. It's hard. There's nothing going on in there. But contrary, there's a lot going on because you just said that bone was living tissue. And if we all understand the premise of how sickle cell disease works, that means that blood is flowing through this tissue. But if there are some sickle cells that are forming blockages, that means that blood is no longer flowing through this tissue, which ultimately decreases oxygen, which in turn causes the tissues to die because they're not getting the, the nutrients nor the oxygen that they need to effectively function. Is that correct? That's exactly right. 
And, and so, you know, all of us can probably relate to physical exercise where, um, you know, when we increase the stresses on our body, when we run or, you know, walk up a flight of stairs, we start breathing a little more heavily because we're mm -hmm. essentially trying to get more oxygen into the lungs and deliver more oxygen into the blood. So that means that, you know, those the demands that we're placing on our body have to be met with the supply of oxygen and nutrients so that we can kind of continue in that activity. Well, bone is working much the same way in that when bone is growing mm -hmm. or when bone is repairing itself over due to some either minor injury, uh, there are increased metabolic demands to get oxygen and nutrient to that bone. And if there is some underlying condition that's making that transport of oxygen and nutrients to the bone uh, inefficient, that's going to lead to problems. Um, some of those problems can uh, be rooted in inflammation because the, the blood vessels in those areas that are not being adequately supplied with oxygen start to become activated in a way that they're calling out uh, uh, for certain types of inflammatory cells to come in and help to deal with that, that can be a source of pain. But also um, some of the, the, the functions of bone to, you know, kind of maintain its strength and its health start to get broken down. And that can also be a source of pain. Wow. That is really eye-opening, I think. Now, in terms of options to, to treat this, because bone pain is just as regular pain with sickle cell disease. It's very common. So where are we in terms of how do we treat this? I know that a lot of people take narcotics, but are there other options that are out there? And if they're not available today, is there research being done to try to combat this issue? So that's a great question. And even though I'm trying to explain the mechanisms of what goes wrong in bone in simple terms, that's not to imply that what actually goes wrong in bone, what some of the sources of pain are, or why the development and the formation of bone gets compromised are well understood. In fact, as you mentioned early in the podcast, they're actually the underlying mechanisms are poorly understood. And in order to come up with treatments that can specifically address some of the manifestations of pain and dysfunction in bone, we have to understand at a mechanistic level what's going on. And that's where my laboratory is focused. We've actually tried to uncover some of the inflammatory mechanisms that are happening specifically in the bone and how that can contribute not only to pain, but also to just the dysfunction in the bone itself where its mechanical properties become compromised. And so my hope is that through research in my lab and many other laboratories that are contributing to this problem, we can come up with solutions that are more specific to the manifestations of pain and dysfunction in bone. But as of right now, I would say the most common ways of treating bone pain are with the management of the disease itself, and unfortunately, some of the other pain medications that many of us are already familiar with. Okay. So with that being said, it sounds like pain in the bone is something that is going to be around until the foreseeable future when we have more direct targets at trying to prevent it. 
So is there a difference in what men may experience versus what women may experience in sickle cell bone pain? That's actually a great question. And it's one of the things that we've actually uncovered relatively recently in our research. So we oftentimes we model the sickle cell disease in, in, in animals where we can actually remove the animal's hemoglobin genes and not and essentially put in human uh, hemoglobin genes that are the same sickle cell uh, genes that are associated with human disease. And so we're creating a humanized form of sickle cell disease in a mouse. And what we can do in that scenario is that we can monitor different organ systems and how they develop and essentially what goes wrong in those organ systems that can be a source of pain and disease that is relevant to human sickle cell disease. And when we did that in a mouse, we took some time to really carefully look at the development of the skeleton in these mice as from the time that they're born until the time in which their skeleton reaches maturity. And one of the more surprising things that we learned is that the, the, the structure of the bone itself in people living with sickle cell disease, to the extent that the mouse models are predictive, is actually quite different. The trabecular structure, so that's some of the, the essentially the, the internal framework in your bone marrow that's holding a lot of the immune cells there, that structure is very, very different in sickle cell disease. And more importantly, those the, the cortical bone, that really dense bone that you can see in the skeletons that you might see in a classroom that you can see from the outside that's kind of holding your muscles and organs uh, as a scaffolding, that the, the, the strength of that cortical bone is actually much weaker in sickle cell disease than it is in normal disease. And both of those, those, those changes in the bone can be the source of problems and dysfunction in bone. But to your point, one of the things that we noticed is that the progression of those changes between, me, between the male mice and the female mice was actually quite different in that we saw that at, a, at, at certain stages of their development, there was a greater severity associated with this bone dysfunction that was occurring in some of our uh, male mice that was not occurring in the, in the female mice and vice versa. And so we think that trying to kind of uh, understand the root causes of these sex differences may be important in developing new treatments for kind of bone pain and dysfunction. Mm, wow. That is remarkable. And I think that it, this information flows back to what we've always said within the sickle cell community, especially when patients go to seek care, is that you have to believe the patient's report when they say that they are in pain. And sometimes I know that women are oftentimes accused of over-dramatizing their pain when they go to seek help or care and they get met with, you know, it, it can't be that bad or it's not that bad. But based on what you are saying, there really are some sex differences that are at play that really could have a person present with a more severe type of sickle cell pain, even though the person next to them may have the very same 
genotype of sickle cell disease. That does not mean that they would present in the same way regarding their severity of pain. So I really like what your laboratory is doing here in expressing that there is a fundamental cause in relation to males versus females and how that pain may be depicted. So for any of the healthcare providers that may be listening to this podcast, I think this information just reiterates what we've been saying all along, that sickle cell patients have to be taken seriously when it comes to their reports of pain or any other issues or concerns that they may bring to the table. It's not something to be easily dismissed. So I know that we've talked about bone pain um, quite a bit, and that's what your your laboratory focuses right. on. What can you? What do you have to offer towards AVN, that avascular necrosis, because that is something that occurs very early on in sickle cell disease, and sometimes even uh, teenagers, as young as fifteen to sixteen, may be at a place where they have to have total hip replacements very, very early on. So. Can you kind of give leeway to how quickly that process takes place as opposed to you have a, a, a teenager needing a hip replacement as opposed to maybe an older adult needing a hip replacement? How does it happen so quickly? That is a, a really great question. And I think it's, it's one of the problems associated with sickle cell disease that I don't think really gets the research attention and the clinical emphasis that it deserves. Many of the uh, repair options and the reconstruction that are happening in adults that are that need uh, kind of knee and, and hip replacements, these these devices were really designed for use in people who are much much older than uh, the the typical sickle cell disease patient who may require one of these very very. Uh, invasive uh, and consequential replacements of their joints. And so one of the things that we've tried to focus on in our lab is, are there ways that we can potentially salvage, that we can save the joints at the point where osteonecrosis begins to present itself? Now, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the clinical interventions are somewhat limited when your physician actually sees the onset of osteonecrosis of the joint. And the one of the procedures that are actually performed in an effort to save the joint and prevent the need for total replacement, particularly avascular necrosis of the hip, is called core decompression. So essentially, they're doing a surgery to drill holes uh, along the, the, the canal uh, in your femur to, uh, it's, it's going to kind of lead to bleeding and bone marrow and, you know, an, an inflammatory reaction that in, in some cases can lead to the, the breakdown of dead bone and the formation of new bone that helps to kind of reestablish a more uh, healthy joint in the best cases. But unfortunately, this core decompression procedure doesn't necessarily have the success rate that you would want, even in people who don't have sickle cell disease. In sickle cell disease in particular, the success rates of core decompression surgeries in order to prevent the breakdown of the femoral head um, is even lower. 
And so we think that some of the underlying inflammatory changes that are causing bone pain, but also causing dysfunction in bone, are one of the reasons why this surgical procedure isn't as successful as it needs to be. And here's a place where we actually think that my expertise and others in biomaterials, localized delivery of therapeutics, and potentially some adult stem cell therapies, particularly bone marrow-derived or adipose-derived stem cells that can actually be delivered into the, this necrotic bone space may make the success of these surgeries much, much greater and hopefully lead to uh, at least some options for people who are living with sickle cell disease and have to make these critical decisions about whether they're actually going to undergo uh, a joint replacement so early in life. Hopefully, the result of our research is going to give them some options of how we can use surgical interventions along with localized stem cell delivery in a way that's going to help save those joints and prevent the need for surgery, at least um, the, the need for surgery as early as it, it happens in sickle cell disease. Okay, that sounds very promising. And I'm very thankful for the work that your laboratory, amongst many others that are doing in trying to, you know, make headway in this space in an area where, you know, for the longest time, it's been looked over for so long. But based on everything that you're saying today, there is a lot going on in this space of the bone that meet, that meets the eye and what we think about when we think of sickle cell disease pain. So I wanted to, to get your opinion, though, on those people who may have had a total um, hip replacement in, in this context. Is it possible when an artificial device is utilized for a person to continue to get repeated infection in the replacement? Because I had a question from a sickle cell patient who actually gone through this process of having a total hip replacement but the patient has now repeatedly have to go back for emergency surgery because infection has set up in this artificial hip. So the question was, yeah. how is that possible if it's not a real bone or tissue? Or is there something else happening? That's a great question. That's a great question. And, you know, implant infection is just a huge, huge problem um, in reconstructive surgery, particularly orthopedic reconstructive surgeries, because the implant materials that we use, the, the, the stainless steels and the titanium metals, um, these implants in certain circumstances can be substrates for the growth of bacteria particularly the, the overgrowth of bacteria where the bacteria can actually colonize and form these things called biofilms that once these infections become established, they are very, very difficult to treat, even with very aggressive kind of antibacterial regimens. And so, um, you know, oftentimes if one of these infections set in, you actually have to go in um, in, in an effort to clear away all of the infected tissue and replace some of the, these implant surfaces that have been contaminated with this bacteria. 
in the hope that your body's own mechanisms of, of fighting away infection can take over to leave the replacement device um, sterile. And so that you, you, there's no longer a need for this kind of ongoing revision and, and, um, uh, and intervention. But you know, I have to say that even in people who don't have sickle cell disease, implant infection can become uh, a very, very difficult and recurring problem. Um, there may be certain, um, I would say, susceptibility that people living with sickle cell disease may have to implant infection. I'm not aware of what those numbers are, but certainly, um, you know, the, the topic of implant infection itself and the recurrence of implant infection, unfortunately, for people who have had those initial infections, the the, the, the possibility that there would be ongoing concerns about infection and reinfection uh, of, of those areas um, is, is, is a, a, a serious problem that doesn't have uh, great solutions right now, particularly not solutions that are specific to sickle cell disease. Okay, that that helps. Um, I know we don't have definitive answers right now, but at least for those people who are going through this process, it gives them a little bit of context to help them to understand that, you know, they didn't do anything wrong. It's not that the doctors did something wrong during the procedure. This is just an innate outcome as a process, you know, as a means of going through the process. These are things that can potentially happen. So I appreciate you for shedding light in that space that even though we, we can't prevent it, this is just something you just have to wait and see almost if this is something that occurs with you. So I know we've talked a lot about what's happening um, in the, the pathological sense of, of bone issue, bone pain. Um, in lieu of not having a, a large number of therapeutics to use, I've heard you speak a lot about inflammation and inflammatory responses that are also culprits of what's contributing to the bone pain here. So as far as being preventive, what can one do to try to decrease the amount of inflammation that may be going on innately in their body that is contributing to the bone pain that they may be experiencing? And I ask this question in the sense of when we talk about exercise, a lot of people with sickle cell disease think that, well, you know, I can't exercise because I don't want to get overexerted or things of that nature. From a physical therapy exercise standpoint, are there things that can be done to try to eliminate or decrease the amount of inflammation that's happening in the body? We certainly hope so. So one of the things that our laboratory has tried to focus on are, um, you know, what are the mediators of inflammation? Meaning, you know, what are the signals that actually keep inflammation in this active state where, you know, more and more immune cells are entering your blood and entering into tissues that can potentially be the source of pain and the breakdown of tissues. And more importantly, you know, what are, what are the signals that are actually turning inflammation off? We do need inflammation. So for example, we need inflammation in immune cells in order to clear, you know, infections after an implant and what we just talked about. 
But if that inflammation is essentially turned on too long and it enters into a chronic state, that's where things start to go wrong. And one of the things that we've specialized in is there, there are certain categories of lipids that are part of the signaling mechanisms that tell inflammation to stop, that help to actively and intentionally resolve inflammation uh, and, and turn it off. And those lipids, as it turns out, and unfortunately so, the, those, those lipid pathways are chronically dysregulated. I mean, they don't work the way that they're supposed to do in sickle cell disease. And so we think that essentially some of the biological mechanisms that are responsible for turning inflammation off is, you know, not working the way that it should in sickle cell disease. Now, what can be done about it, ideally, um, that one day we'll have pharmaceutical or, or, or drug interventions that are specifically geared toward addressing any type of deficiency in resolution signaling you know, to turn inflammation off for sickle cell disease. And But until we reach that point, one of the things that we can do is to think about dietary interventions. And so there's certain ways in which you can use the things that you eat and the things that you supplement with uh, as a form of therapy, almost like a pharmaceutical. Some people even call them nutraceuticals. And so, you know, there are things like curcumin and, and turmeric. And, you know, these are spices that, you know, essentially have, you know, a long history of uh, use as anti-inflammatory supplements. They can be used in food. They can be taken in the form of of pills and supplementation. Um, many of us have heard about the omega-3 fatty acids that you can get in certain types of fish and other um, uh, foods, but you can also supplement with. Some of these essential fatty acids are the precursors to these lipid signals that turns inflammation off. And so we can adopt diets that um, help your body uh, generate some of these lipid signals to keep inflammation managed well and to turn it off, you know, when it needs to be turned off uh, so that we don't enter this chronic phase of inflammation. Now, I wish I could say that there was a perfect sickle cell disease diet that was going to reduce inflammation in all people in every circumstance, but most of us are probably accustomed to the idea that um, you know, the, that one diet, uh, you know, one particular food, you know, you, one person's body may not react the same as another person. And so we do have to remain kind of vigilant in, you know, the things that we eat and supplement with to hopefully find the things that work for us. But at least for now, I do think one of the things that we can do is to manage diet and supplementation in a way that helps to keep chronic inflammation at bay. And I think over the long run, that's going to lead to better health outcomes. You know, I could not agree with you more. I'm a strong um, advocate for using the things that, that God gave us first um, in terms of managing our disease states. Um, any medication yes. that initially you know, came to market 
they all came from some form of a plant initially when we started this thing called medicine and finding what works. So there's definitely some utility and what you said, finding what works for you is the key. So for anyone who's listening, this is not a, a, a prescription per se of, you know, this is a panacea that this is going to work for every person. You have to go through the motions of finding what works best for your body and be patient. Be patient with the process until you find what does work. And then when you do find it, the other part of that is consistency. You have to remain consistent with whatever it is that you find that works for you. This is um, something that has to be practiced over the long run. Instead of, you know, thinking that you're having this episode today, you can go and take this turmeric supplement this afternoon and you're going to be fine. That's not the way supplementation provides its benefits. This is a lifestyle change. That means this has to become a way of life. If you are adopting a diet that is anti-inflammatory, that means that your diet has to represent this most of the time, not necessarily you're providing a a knee-jerk type of reaction because you're feeling some type of pain today. That's not the way um, nutraceuticals particularly work. Um, In addition to to the diet piece, I want to touch on the exercise piece because I want people who have sickle cell disease to get a, a good understanding of how physical therapy may play a role in helping to prevent some of that inflammation, because I don't want people to feel like, well, I I have to stay stationary or I can't go for a walk because that in of itself, I think can contribute to, you know, making whatever inflammation that is there, making it worse. Is that good guidance in terms of taking on some type of exercise? Absolutely. You know, in, in terms of what things can, you know, be the greatest obstacles to helping to keep inflammation at bay, sedentariness is one of the biggest problems that I think can be a root cause of just chronic inflammation. One of the reasons is that movement um, is just absolutely necessary um, to help your body systems of clearing away immune cells work the way that they should. There's certain specialized uh, vessels in your body. They're they're called lymphatic vessels. And, you know, these aren't uh, the the traditional blood vessels that your heart is pumping blood through. But, you know, these vessels are are almost like uh, collecting vessels where when you walk, when you move, when you even do modest exercise, it can help kind of shuttle immune cells back into these blood vessels so that they can exit from tissues where they might be a source of kind of chronic inflammation and re-enter into the systems that help to eliminate older blood vessels, older uh, immune cells that uh, may be more prone to uh, kind of some type of inflammatory reaction and, and that we don't want those in our tissues. And so walking and things like yoga or you know, other forms of non-high impact exercise can be so critical in helping to lower inflammation and to maintain health. Um, it doesn't need to be, you know, really intense exercise where 
you're putting really strong, you know, kind of oxygen delivery demands and creating states of hypoxia in your muscles. It doesn't necessarily need to be that, but but you know, some uh, walking exercise and low impact exercise at the very minimum, I think, is critical in order to uh, really uh, keep chronic inflammation from setting in. Wow. That is really what they say, news that we can use. So many times, I think there are a lot of myths that are circulated within the sickle cell community that are not really beneficial or helpful to the cause. And one of those myths certainly is around exercise and how people with sickle cell disease, they shouldn't, you know, do anything to, to get them all, you know, in a, in a state of where they're using up too much oxygen with too much physical activity. But like you said, everything in moderation, low impact walking and, and yoga, those are things that we all, I think, can do and can do them relatively safely. Now, for those people that are out there that want to do more, it is definitely advisable that you talk with your medical professional before you take on any activities of that nature. But just a, a basic walk or some basic stretching could definitely be helpful for you. And we're talking about ways in which we can be preventive and helping manage sickle cell bone pain. These are definitely some things that can be done. They are free of charge uh, for the most part in terms of you know what's required to, to take advantage of these things in lieu of having direct acting pharmaceutics and therapeutic options available. These are ways in which people can empower themselves in, in managing their sickle cell disease. So Dr. Bartue, I just want to say thank you for sharing your time with us today and talking about the research that is currently being conducted in your lab, in addition to those that are around the country, also searching for those same answers that we're all looking for, because we've presented some very complex concerns that are plaguing the sickle cell community, especially when it comes down to how sickle bone pain is managed. So I do appreciate you sharing your expertise here and also sharing that you these people that talk about this pain, it's not all in their head and they really do feel it in their bones. So uh, with that, I just want to say thank you. And if you have any uh, contacts for our listening audience that may want to um, contact you further, and, you know, once you all get further down the line, if there's any research, I know that may be important for the sickle cell community to take part in. Is there any uh, parting information or contact information that you'd like to share? Yeah, certainly reaching out to me on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, we're at Botway Lab on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm Edward uh, Botway uh, at bme.godtech.edu on, on Twitter. Um, you know, in, in keeping up with some of the, the research that we're doing in, in sickle cell and other areas that may be of interest is, is certainly welcome. Um, and, you know, and before we close, I also just want to, to thank you for this opportunity. I, 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 you know, as I alluded to when I started the, the podcast today, um, you know, the research that I started my career with was um, quite different than uh, and, and not necessarily directly relatable to sickle cell uh, disease um, early on in my career. And it was really the encouragement that I got from my family 
um, and from uh, other people living with sickle cell disease who impressed upon me how significant um, this uh, disease is and how underserved we are from the research community right now in that I don't think there's nearly as much research going into sickle cell disease uh, that it should be. If I, if I look to other diseases and, and compare the number of people who are suffering from them to the amount of dollars that are actually invested in research to solve those problems, um, sickle cell disease is you know, not getting the research dollars, not getting the research attention, in my opinion, that it really should be. And so, Dr. Scott, I just think podcasts like yours, patient advocacy groups, and also just the outreach from patients themselves that take the time to tell their stories uh, and, and to reach out to researchers who are doing this work, I think that that just becomes pivotal in helping to move more people like myself kind of out of their silos in kind of research in other areas and directly into solving the problems that are specific uh, to, to sickle cell disease. And I think more of this needs to happen. And I hope it, in that, that when it does, we're going to come up with even you know, better and more highly successful options for, for people living with sickle cell to deal with bone pain and bone dysfunction, but hopefully all of the different kind of pathological consequences that are associated with it. And for that, I, I say thank you. And we will close out our podcast for now. And we look forward to other people that are listening to contact you. We look forward to more research dollars, especially being um, poured into laboratories like yours. So hopefully those that are listening feel so inclined to, to support that research because families like mine and yours and the rest of the sickle cell community are depending on it. So thank you, Dr. Again, again Dr. Brunchwell. I know you enjoyed listening to that episode just as much as we did. So please subscribe, head to your podcast player and click subscribe and also leave us a review. Tell a friend about the Vitamin SC3 podcast.